You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190, by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses in Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 7, given in Dornach on the 5th of April, 1919. I will have to begin very pedantically today, because by using a specific characteristic, I will need to shed some light on our times by characterizing them in general. I should like to characterize for you a particular attribute of our times, the consideration of which is extraordinarily important for someone who is aiming to look at our times from the vantage point of spiritual science, that is, with open eyes of the soul. And as a starting point, I should like to work empirically, as it were, from a specific example that might appear rather pedantic, but which is nevertheless symptomatic of a very, very general characteristic of our time. To begin with, I should like just to indicate which characteristic of our time I mean. It is a certain mental confusion that stems from a superficiality in our time that has very significant effects. To do this, I will take a very specific concrete example. Some of you will perhaps remember that in the countless discussions about the events that led up to this world catastrophe, a great role was played by an English telegram which was construed in a very particular way. Parenthesis, I won't go into the causes of the war again today. That is not what I will discuss. What I am talking about is this quality of our times. What I will talk about has nothing to do directly with what we have discussed about the events of 1914. Close parenthesis. So, there was a lot of talk about a telegram composed in London and sent to St. Petersburg, where it played a curious role, despite it being believed that the telegram actually arose as an agreement between the British Foreign Minister Gray and the German Ambassador Lichnowsky. This, so people thought, was the origin of the telegram that made a particular impression in St. Petersburg and was followed immediately by Russia's mobilization. And it was a real puzzle in many respects as to how it came about that a telegram was written due to an agreement between the German ambassador to London, Lichnowsky, and Edward Gray, that is sent to St. Petersburg and there immediately prompts full mobilization. Strange proof of this telegram's existence, which curiously was so much spoken about and yet was not to be found in the British, in quotes, blue book, Strange proof was seen in the wording of the proposal made by Satsanov, as it was said, immediately following receipt of this telegram from England, in other words, without taking into consideration a proposal in which the German ambassador was also involved. Without taking into consideration the wording of this telegram, Russia was immediately mobilized. As I said, I am not speaking about the causes of the war. I just want to highlight that it was a great puzzle how, following this telegram, Satsanov 
could formulate his proposals regarding Austria and Serbia, how he could agree to mobilization, and so on. One of the people who have spoken a great deal about this telegram is the present German Socialist Minister David, who at that time was the German Reichstag deputy. He not only gave a speech in the Reichstag before a large number of people, who at such a grave time were of course also privy to the business, he also wrote an article that got much attention about this telegram in the newspaper, the title Frankfurter Zeitung. This became a very mysterious thing. I will now write the wording on the board. As you see, I am beginning very pedantically, which the Russian foreign minister Satsunov formulated after this telegram, quote, on behalf of his government, close quote. This is how the translation goes, continue, quote, the British ambassador conveyed to me the wish of the London cabinet to make a few changes in the wording of the proposal I made yesterday to the German ambassador. I answered that I accept the British proposal. I hereby present to you the formulation with the appropriate alterations. Quote. As mentioned, the present German minister, David, also referred to this Satsunov formulation, and in his article in the Frankfurter Zeitung, particularly highlights the words, quote, I answered that I accept the British proposal, close quote. This sentence is held to mean that the proposal set out by Lichnowsky and Gray in the telegram, and which is so much spoken about, was accepted. Based on this telegram, David writes a long article in the Frankfurter Zeitung, which has been widely read and received much acclaim, and which sheds light on this telegram based on Satsanov's curious answer, quote, I answered that I accept the British proposal, close quote, and this is followed by mobilization. So the conclusion to be drawn from this is that the telegram must have contained a British proposal to mobilize. Now, I note that this highlighting is not in the wording, but this highlighting is extraordinarily important for what I call the confusion of our time. For naturally, when something is highlighted, that is, printed in bold font, people are anxious to read it carefully, considering such an emphasis to be the main content of the matter. But, as mentioned, it is not highlighted in the original formulation at all. We just need to read the wording. We just need to read it properly. The way it is spoken about in the extensive article is referring to a proposal that is supposed to have been contained in a telegram as I explained. But just read the wording, quote, On behalf of his government, the British ambassador conveyed to me the wish of the London cabinet to make a few changes to the wording of the proposal I made yesterday to the German ambassador. I answered that I accept the British proposal. Close quote. The wording Satsanov is here referring to is the one he himself had composed on the previous day. Gray had wanted a change. Satsanov mentions this change and says, quote, I answered that I accept the British proposal, close quote, namely, to alter today the wording he had composed the day before. So this sentence relates to the fact that he changed the previous day's wording to this new formulation, changed the wording of yesterday on which this new wording is based. And the sentence is referring to this change. 
The proposal was for a change in his wording. This means that the telegram doesn't exist at all. The telegram is a pure ghost and is based solely on the fact that this wording was read wrongly because in the superficiality of the present times people did not take time to follow properly what was in the sentences. Just consider that at the present time it is possible in the gravest matters for people to talk about something that doesn't even exist because in their superficiality they don't understand what they are reading. This is just one example of a situation that arises on countless occasions nowadays, that the people who write and print cannot read, that the readers, thousands upon thousands of them, don't notice that the writers and print editors cannot read and talk about things that don't exist. So you see, the penalty for not recognizing a spiritual world, for not recognizing what people call ghosts, is that they themselves create ghosts in their superficiality. Someone who looks at the world today with healthy perception finds at every turn the most disastrous consequences of this terrible superficiality, which results in confused thinking. And the most tragic aspect, actually, is that when one highlights and discusses these things, the subject makes very little impression on people today because superficiality, lack of thought, has now unfortunately become a general human characteristic. And it is just terrible how much in the entire life of the present is based on the results of this superficiality. This is how we must see the psychological state of our times. And we cannot take the importance of such phenomena seriously enough. In our times, it would be necessary for almost everyone who tries to inform themselves about some matter through the usual feasible means, irrespective of whether by word of mouth from another, for the same superficiality exists today in the spoken word, or by reading it in whatever source, to be constantly led by an inner critical sense and say to themselves, quote, you must try to see through the things that swirl around in the world and which, by entering human souls through all kinds of channels and working in human souls as impulses, cause immense confusion in life, cause immense chaos. As mentioned, my starting point today was a concrete example to show you how leading individuals are misled by their superficiality not only into speaking about something that doesn't exist, but into writing pages and pages of analysis of non-existent things, and how such individuals, who are called upon to contribute to world destiny, present this stuff to congresses without the hundreds of members who are there to represent their people, noticing it. These things must be taken very seriously, and one of the bitterest things of the present day is that precisely in the last four and a half years, people have become even more accustomed to not looking exactly and precisely at what is there in reality. Positivism doesn't mean having an uncritical mind. Positivism means looking at things as they are and not chasing after fantasies that create pure ghosts rather than reality. What I am saying here is very current, for it concerns every single person in every single situation in life. 
And something of this kind can happen at any moment to any individual person in any situation in life. Now, I could multiply this example not only a hundredfold, but a thousandfold. And this thousandfold increase would bear witness to the fact that a general characteristic of present-day humanity is to lead itself into confusion through superficiality, because it has a certain aversion to tackling reality. But this all stems from deeper causes founded in our human development. We can't talk about these things only in the usual way, where my words too are perhaps perceived as a wish to criticize the present time. But it is nevertheless true that this tidal wave of confusion has risen up over humanity through influences outside the earth, through influences from a spiritual, aramonic direction. We see this on the one hand in the prevalence of confusion, such as I demonstrated in a grotesque example, and on the other hand in the fact that many individuals who know how to manipulate people today make use of this confusion. They count on this confusion in the broadest sense. Individuals who are not of a benign nature, but who aim at using spiritual forces, in turn bring into the midst of humanity exactly that which reckons with the confusion, with the, quote, not wanting to address the facts, close quote. Just look at what we see cropping up today, my dear friends. One need only reckon a small amount with the factors of confusion and then it is easy to confuse people, to deceive people about almost anything. An example, some time ago a book appeared in Russian which in its first part, I am not speaking now about the rest of the contents, contained a number of protocols, ostensibly of a meeting of some secret society whose members listened to the most unbelievable things from their superiors. This secret society is like a kind of devil, we could say, within humanity. Roughly everything that is the opposite of what is good and beneficial for humanity was supposed to originate from this secret society. And these protocols were supposed to be evidence, according to the speeches that were given in that secret society, that such a society exists. The protocols are even supposed to have been found in extraordinary proximity to where we are now, and are contained in a book which, however, is written from a Russian perspective. As I said, I will not speak about the rest of the book, but one only needs to read a small portion of these protocols and to know the world to recognize it as one of the crudest of Jesuit frauds. What is written there are simply Jesuitical forgeries in order to make out the existence of such a society. These things are then used in turn to affect people's confusion. This confusion in people is immensely dangerous in our time, because, as mentioned, it is not based solely on impulses we can find within physical life on earth, but because spiritual forces of an aramonic nature play into it. We must definitely acquaint ourselves with these things, for it is really not a matter of engaging in anthroposophical spiritual science in the sense of knowing the full content of what it imparts. Rather, the essential point, as I have often said previously, is that by absorbing anthroposophical spiritual science, which necessitates a kind of judgment that is not applicable 
to the ordinary physical world, one becomes more reality-friendly, more insightful, more sound in one's judgment with regard to life in the world. Now, as I said, a tidal wave of confusion is moving over the world. Why is this? Recall that our present fifth post-Atlantean age began in 1413, the age of consciousness-soul development. Since that time, humanity has been particularly striving to develop the consciousness-soul. When we speak of our age, we do so from a perspective within Earth's development. For in physical Earth development, something comes to expression which, when put into words, says since the middle of the 15th century, humanity has been in the age of consciousness-soul development. But it would be possible to put the question from a different perspective, one which we need to touch on again and again in spiritual science. We could also pose the question from the perspective of discarnate souls, the souls that are living between death and a new birth. It is of great significance with regard to many things that must be discussed in anthroposophical spiritual science, always to bear clearly in mind the perspective of how the things look for discarnate human souls, and even for other spirits of the different spiritual hierarchies. Only by this means can we rightly gauge whether we are expressing inappropriate spiritual scientific terms what we determine from an earthly perspective, which is, of course, always one-sided. Now, one who, by means of spiritual scientific research, surveys this period of the fifth post-Atlantean age, discovers that just as the life of the living changes, who increasingly establish the pinnacle of personality on the ground of consciousness, so from a very specific moment onward, the life of the deceased changes also. And here we can initially only take into consideration the extent to which this life of the dead changes in its interaction with human beings alive on earth. It is so extraordinarily difficult to convey to human consciousness the relationship between the living and the dead, because, as I have often indicated from many various points of view, what one experiences there is so extraordinarily different from what can be experienced here within physical earthly surroundings. But it is within physical earthly surroundings that people usually form their ideas. But we are living at a time when these ideas formed within physical earthly surroundings have to be corrected through experiences with discarnate souls. Initially, it is very difficult to understand what is actually going on there. One experiences there, in an extraordinarily lively way, the effects of what I spoke about in the previous lectures, the relationship of the dead to human language. I told you that nouns are barely understood by the dead. I described how the other kinds of words are understood by the dead, but even here there are differences we can say that what is clearly discernible is that human language, as it is spoken here on earth, despite the accuracy of what I recently described, is becoming more and more unintelligible to the dead. Certainly they understand verbs, they understand antecedents, they understand everything where we ourselves are obliged to form pictorial thoughts. 
but with advancing time the dead are losing their understanding, their ability to grasp what can be put into language. And this will change in the future. It will change more and more. There is something, albeit only for certain people, that becomes evident with exceptional clarity, namely that with regard to the natural science pursued here on earth, the dead understand nothing at all. If we talk with the deceased about any number of other things, we meet with understanding. But if we clothe what we wish to convey to the deceased in a scientific mode of thought, they experience this literally as pain. This is exceptionally important and testifies, along with what can also be drawn from other spiritual underground causes, to the fact that everything that can be produced here to do with knowledge of nature is all produced only through the human physical organism. And as soon as a human being leaves their physical organism, the knowledge of nature they developed in that physical organism through natural science is no longer valid for them. It has no significance for them. They no longer perceive it. It is no longer there. We can get a very clear idea about these things. Take a purely scientific book, let's say on botany, written by a confirmed scientist. Take a chapter and try to convey what is written purely along the lines of present-day science to one who has died. It causes him pain. He has no idea where the pain is coming from. It doesn't conform to him in any way. He cannot absorb it. The moment you recall a time when you saw a dandelion, which the scientist might also perhaps be writing about, and you picture vividly the dandelion's yellow color and its curiously jagged leaves, the moment you really feel inwardly what your eye sees, Hawaii, and you have to feel it since the eye's image is absent for the deceased, then when you feel, the deceased begins to understand. This is very remarkable. Pleasure at the sight of a green meadow can be experienced by the dead, along with the earthly person. Scientific thoughts about the green meadow are something they cannot experience. Scientists today say that actually we cannot form a concept of life. Only in the future, they say, will some particularly complete science discover how life is composed of all kinds of combinations of atoms. But as things stand today, we are not in a position to form an idea of what life is. If, however, you grasp the idea of life in the way Goethe grasps it, for example, in his theory of metamorphosis, and make this idea really alive in yourself, the dead will also understand it. Those are ideas that the dead understand. Now behind everything I have just discussed, there is a very specific historic spiritual fact. What I have just spoken about first begins to emerge distinctly from roughly 1721 onward. If you go back to the period before 1720 and go deeply and with understanding into writings about nature that were produced at that time, most people do not notice this, but it is nevertheless the case, you will see that nature is spoken about in a far more lively way. The present way of speaking about nature, which we can say is unintelligible to the dead, 
actually began only at the beginning of the 18th century. That was when this wave first broke over humanity. Prior to this, people felt the need to write about nature in a much more vivid way, so that the dead could still understand it, and there was a certain shared experience between the dead and the living. Since the turn of the 18th century, scientific ideas have become such that they are ideas only for people on earth, for as long as these people on earth are in a physical body, and they no longer constitute a connection that reaches up into the spiritual world. This is a fact of exceptional importance in the history of spiritual development, for it will now perhaps be easy for you to imagine how we are entering a process in which discarnate souls are cut off from the earth by science, which is the only thing people will give credence to, from precisely what people regard as scientifically most valid. Imagine as vividly as you can what I have just said. It's no use closing our mental eyes to these things. Imagine how in the universities all over the earth Everything is gradually being eradicated that is not valid in terms of so-called exact science. In other words, universities are like islands on the earth, Steiner draws on the board, where the eradication of everything that is not exact science is most thorough. Thus, these universities are the places from which the spirit, that is, everything that exists as being in the spiritual, flees. And they are those islands in human culture where unspirituality, unspiritual life, finds its onset to the greatest degree. Seen from another point of view, of course, universities are our intellectual, spiritual centers. But just think how we people on earth actually speak. Since the 18th century, we have called the places where the spirit takes its leave, where the spirit is present, least of all, our intellectual, spiritual centers. The present is not the time to close our eyes to these things, not to look at these things with, I should like to say, a cool head that accords with genuine reality, because when we ignore such things, we close ourselves off from what has to be understood if we want to investigate the true reality of our time. The course of development that began in the 18th century has reached its culmination in our time. And in our time it needs to be reversed. A reversal is necessary in our time to the other wave, to the spiritual wave I characterized for you here recently, through which a spiritual life is really making itself known to humanity. Now, there are spirits of a kind that have a particular inclination to satiate themselves, as it were, on the things that become unspiritual in this way on our earth. These are the Aramonic spirits. Ordinary discarnate human souls and life between death and a new birth feel it as something negative when they experience this knowledge of nature like a pain. They experience something of this nature knowledge and thus have a kind of negative experience. Luciferic spirits have a terrible rage against this nature knowledge. They hate it. Only Aramonic spirits have a certain propensity for it, seek to achieve their aims through it, and so involve themselves in this knowledge of nature, which thus becomes a focus of attraction for them. 
Now, Araman is, of course, precisely the spirit of deception, of delusion. And in what I have discussed, I have shown at the same time that ever since the beginning of the 18th century, the Aramanic influences have become stronger and stronger. It is due to this that the tidal wave of confusion has risen up over humanity. That's where it comes from. This wave of confusion is what has taken hold of people like a whirlpool and which comes to expression in the prodigious superficiality I spoke about at the beginning of today's talk. We have to know such things because precisely through anthroposophically oriented spiritual science we must be able to protect ourselves from these things, to safeguard ourselves against them. One form of this safeguarding is the critical awareness I spoke about, paying attention to what can come at us from all directions nowadays to confuse us, as in the example I mentioned, which was barely noticed or noticed by only a few. On the other hand, what I have been talking about is the basis of something else. Obviously, one can't avoid something that is a general world phenomenon. It is unavoidably present. And this wave of confusion is also clearly present. Closing our mental eyes to it is of no help whatsoever. The only thing that helps is drawing attention to the fact that this wave of confusion exists. And we become attentive when primarily with things related to the spiritual world, we say to ourselves, quote, There is confusion everywhere, and it seeks to hold us back from genuine knowledge of the spiritual world. Close quote. If we have a kind of suspicion, let us call it, that anything we are told out of the spiritual world might also be erroneous, when we train ourselves to be sufficiently cautious, then we will most certainly not succumb to the wave of confusion so prevalent in our time. We must find the courage to pass through this confusion and to rise above it by very much occupying ourselves with genuine, healthy human reason. We will only be able to possess this healthy human reason if we do not allow ourselves to be confused by something that is so very common at the present time. At the present time, once they have reached a certain age, people will only regard as valid what they are already familiar with. A very general phenomenon is that people cannot be convinced of anything new once they have reached a certain age. When they encounter something new, all they do is ask themselves whether this is something they have already thought themselves. If it is, then they agree with it. But if it is something they have not thought already, then for them it is wrong or abstract or deficient in some other way. In short, there is some reason why they reject the matter. By contrast, it is actually the earnest task of the individual today to be always, I will not say convinced by new things, but at least to engage with new things without prejudice, to be open-minded toward new things that come into the world. It might appear to be just a trivial remark that I make here, but it is not a trivial remark, because what I am talking about is transgressed against so frequently at the present time. And many things would quickly improve if more power to convince could be developed in the interaction between people, if people were not so dismissive in their interaction, if they did not insist so rigidly on the opinions they have harbored 
from a certain age onward. So what lies behind this, my dear friends? At the same time as the appearance of what I have mentioned with regard to scientifically oriented thinking, a very specific process of development begins in humanity, which consists of the following. In the main, the human being is a physical body embedded in an etheric body. We don't need to consider the other levels today. But the intimacy of the connection between the etheric head and the human physical head, what I mean here is not their spatial coincidence, but the dynamic aspect of their connection, changes over the course of evolution. And the intimate connection that was there, for example, in the centuries we refer to when speaking about Greek culture, ceased to exist from the third pre-Christian century onward. The old close connection between our etheric head and our physical head has been lost ever since the third century before Christ. But a very close connection has, nevertheless, been maintained between the physical human heart and the etheric human heart. However, since the year 1721, this connection between the physical heart and the etheric heart has, in a curious way, been loosening more and more. If I may put it like this, if the physical heart is here, Steiner draws on the board, and the etheric heart is here, then they were previously more of a whole. Nowadays, the etheric heart can be shaken etherically. Dynamically speaking, it is not so intimately connected as it was before. In the future, other organs in the human being will also loosen from the etheric. But the fact that the heart is gradually loosening from its etheric part, and by the third millennium, roughly when people will be writing 2100, will have separated entirely, is something of great significance in human development. This can be characterized as follows. The significance is that what previously came to people by itself, through the natural connection between the physical heart and the etheric heart, will have to be sought by a different path, by the path of spiritual life. This etheric heart, now separated from the physical heart, will only attain its proper relationship to the spiritual world if people actively seek spiritual knowledge, if people seek anthroposophically oriented spiritual thoughts. This will increasingly have to be sought. Now we find something highly curious in our time. When, with due respect to them, newspaper people talk about anthroposophical spiritual science, they often say, quote, yes, but it's an entire system, and complicated. It requires you to think so hard, whereas Christianity makes everything simple. It has faith, close quote. But this faith that doesn't want to exert itself toward spiritual life, that doesn't want to engage with real thoughts about the spiritual world, this faith, since the separation of the etheric heart from the physical heart, is exceptionally dangerous because being a faith that doesn't want to comprehend the spiritual world, that only wants to have a naive feeling relationship with the spiritual world, this faith makes the heart in humanity materialistic. It is a means of bringing about the materialization of culture in an area one wouldn't usually think of. This is why, if we take the matter seriously, 
religious people are so terribly materialistic in our time because they rely merely on faith. This faith must be imbued and spiritually permeated by real ideas about the spiritual world. And it is an harmonic trick in the age of confusion to inculcate into people the notion that they should not work toward a conception of the spiritual world, but stay fixed in faith alone. So you see, this points again to something in our time that is immensely significant. And what I said today at the beginning and what I say here at the end of today's discussion come together. Just look with an open mind at the terrible thoughtlessness, at the boundless superficiality which have given rise to our sad condition. Look deeply at what can only be stated by spiritual science, namely the separation of the etheric heart from the physical heart, and take from such discussions the impulse of gravity that is so necessary for development in our times. In our times, on the one hand, the number of people who, due to superficial confusion, no longer know what they are talking about, will become ever greater. In such an individual, it is naturally quite evident that they don't know what they are talking about because they are talking about something that no longer exists, because they cannot read properly anymore. On the other hand, the number of people will also continually increase who wish to fish in troubled waters, who use the confusion in people's minds to instill all manner of things into them because confused minds are receptive to all sorts of impulses. For among the spirits that still have a connection to the earthly confusion are the spirits of deception, the harmonic spirits. And one can implant into people the opposite of rationality, of what is healthy, by making use of their confused state. These are serious matters, my dear friends. We will continue with them tomorrow. The lecture will begin tomorrow at 7.30. The end of Lecture 7